Get your gear ready. This is a Sherpa's Guide to Innovation. Greetings and welcome to a Sherpa's Guide to Innovation, a podcast dedicated to guiding you along your innovation expedition. I'm Ben Tingi, your host, joined once again by Jay Gerhardt. Hey, Jay. Hey, Ben. Good to talk to you yet again. Great to talk to you. Thanks for joining me. We are thrilled to welcome a nationally recognized healthcare leader and change agent, Dr. Deb Salas-Lopez. Deb recently joined Northwell Health as Senior Vice President of Community and Population Health. Prior to that, she served as the Chair of Medicine, Associate Chief Medical Officer, and Chief Transformation Officer at Lehigh Valley Health Network. If that's not enough reason to talk with her, she also has a new book out entitled The Girl from the Bronx, A True Story of Struggle, Resiliency, and Courage, a memoir that she wrote along with a colleague, Dr. Llewellyn J. Cornelius. With that, Deb, welcome to A Sherpa's Guide to Innovation podcast. Hi, Ben. Hi, Jay. How are you doing today? It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for the invite. I'm really looking forward to talking and speaking with you today. It's great to have you here. It's really exciting. To set a little context for our listeners, I'd like to read the opening passage from the foreword of of your book written by Maria Varela, a community development leader and veteran of the U.S. civil rights movement. Social movements typically involve visionary leaders who illuminate the path and effective organizers who execute the path. Dr. Debbie Salas Lopez combines these roles in one person, and everything she has touched marries the cause of justice to the institutionalization of important social change in the field of health. Thanks for sharing that, Jane. And, and that's a great backdrop, I think, for our conversation. Uh, a quick note that I'll share with our listeners. If you've been listening to this podcast and haven't yet provided a review and a rating on iTunes, we ask that you do and then share your favorite episode with a friend or colleague. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, Medium, or on Twitter at SherpaPod. And then we'd also encourage you to follow and listen to some of the other exceptional podcasts on the Health Podcast Network, which you can find on Twitter at HealthPodNet. All right, Deb, we are so excited to be speaking with you. And and here's our first question. It's a standard question Mm -hmm. for most of our guests. And so feel free to have some fun. Fill in the blank for me. I wanted Uh to be a blank when I grew up. Now I'm a blank and they both Mm -hmm. blank. Mm -hmm. Uh So uh, when I was growing up, I wanted to be a doctor. And now... I'm a doctor, and they both have come together in terms of accomplishing a dream I had as a little girl. Wow. That's, what, what was that dream? Can you, can you tell us more about why you, you yearned to be a, a physician all the way back? I remember my dad would say, you know, I was one of five and the, the second oldest my sister, uh, O'Nelly, she's two years older than me. And, she, and so she, you know, for example, got a rash when, you know, when she was washing the dishes. And, and so I got to be the, the dishwasher. And eventually with the, my three youngest siblings, I, you know, got to take care of them and, and help them and dress them and get them ready for school. And so my dad would joke and say, you know, Deb, you'd make a good doctor someday. I, I remember, you know, 
being seven, eight years old, and, and dad would always say that because I was always caring for my siblings. And so I'd look up at my dad and I'd think, you know, that's a crazy thought. It's just that I'd like to do it. You know, they, you know, my siblings and I are very close. Looking back, the idea that I could care for people and care about people came from my dad as, you know, young as I was. That's really neat. So your book's been out just a little while now, right? I think July is when it came out. Yeah, it's been released. It's on Amazon.com. It was released uh, on, on July 27th. We're really excited. It was a long time in the making. And uh, we're really excited that it's been uh, released. And it's available in hard copy. And it's also available on Audible. Awesome. And, and we'll provide links on the in the show notes for that. Deb, could you tell us about when you first started thinking about writing this book? Was there anything that prompted you to just sit down and start doing it? I met so many people during my life, depending on what I was doing, that would tell me that they had a dream and that they would wanted to do X, Y, or Z in life. And I thought, looking back, I wish someone had given me advice or inspired me to, to do it or to, to go for it. And I wish I, I could do that to somebody. And so I think the initial idea came from, I'd like to tell my story so that I can inspire just one person to strive for whatever they're dreaming for and achieving for in life. And so I, that's the basic reason. I just, I want to touch one life, inspire one person to go for it, including my own family members, my children. So I think the idea came from just wanting to inspire. I have a feeling you're going to exceed one, probably a lot more more than one after after reading the book. You know, you. The way the book starts, there's so many great stories from your childhood, and you, you really put the reader uh, in your neighborhood and, and in your home really well. What, what are one, one or two of your childhood experiences or learnings that just left such an imprint on you that they sustain you or impact the work you do today? Yeah, I can think of two. The first is I grew up when the Bronx was burning. When I'm thinking about the late 60s and 70s and childhood, and, and I remember my dad's church was in Harlem. And during that time, I remember how afraid I was, just holding his hand wherever we parked under the uh, DL and we'd have to walk to the front door of the church and how afraid I'd be that, you know, that there were, there was looting on the streets and there was violence on the street. And yet how safe I felt with, with mom and with dad walking into that church. And I, I always thought as a kid, why does it have to be this way? You know, why, uh, why is, why is this happening? Uh, and, and that, that was the, the first real memory I had of how can we change the world? How, what can we do together so that we make a difference in, in, you know, in the world? We make a difference in each other's lives. And, and I remember taking that with me as a kid growing up as a young adult. How can I make a difference so that um, we can impact someone's life in a positive way? The second thing I remember is actually something that was a negative statement at the time, but it turned out to be a positive motivator for me. And that was my high school, my junior high school teacher back in the day in the Bronx said something to me that 
I never forgot. She said, Deb, Debbie, you better learn how to type. Chances are that's all you'll be able to do in life because I was a bad typist. I still am. And so I think in her way, she was trying to encourage me to do better and, and, and type fast. And I remember saying, why, why does it only, why does it have to be that? Why, why can't I be whatever I want to be? Why can't I uh, grow up to be a doctor? Like my dad always says. And, and so I think I remember that statement and saying, I'm, I'm glad to be learn to learn how to type and type fast, but I bet I can achieve anything I set my mind to. So those are two very impactful memories I have from my childhood. I remember where I was sitting in that class when she said it and how that statement motivated me to not only learn how to type, but also achieve my dream. Those are great examples. And and one of the things I like about the book is after each chapter, it doesn't just go straight into the next story. You take you take a a page or so and talk about what your lessons learned are are along the way. And I think that's that's really valuable. Well, earlier you said when you grew up you wanted to be a doctor and you became a doctor. And some people mm-hmm. might hear that and think, oh, well, Deb went to college. She was pre-med. She went to med school and she became a doctor. Didn't quite go that way, did it? <laughs> I just love the story about your early career arc. Can you talk a little bit about how you got into real estate and then how that yes. led to medical school? Because I just love it. <laughs> so thanks, Jay. So uh, to put it in perspective and into context uh, Growing up in the Bronx, my father was a minister and was a minister for, for all of his life. It was a family of five. You know, my dad uh, worked, you know, quite a few part-time jobs and supported the family. But we, the prospects of college for us, you know, back in the day, only 60, 50%, 60% of kids actually graduated from high school, you know, let alone uh, think about college. So growing up, while, you know, my parents always encouraged us to, to achieve our dreams, you know, there was a practicality of poverty. And frankly, the practicality of, of getting guidance advice. Uh, where we grew up, it, the advice was about how to stay safe. And so my life and, and my career as a result were really what I call non-traditional. I had a lot of detours. And so my my upbringing, uh, you know, I graduated from college, I mean, from high school, and then I went to a, a Union County Tech and became a medical lab technician. It was a two-year college and went to night school and, and then uh, went out and, and to, to, to do night school and, and, and get a biology degree from, from Kane University, always because I had an, an insatiable appetite. I was, I was curious about science, about biology. And there was always in the back of my mind, I wonder if I can do this. I wonder if I can achieve this. And every chance I took, you know, and every chance I could, I, I would, you know, either get my employer to pay for, for, for night classes or, or, or whatever it was. It was always, I was always taking a baby step towards that ultimate dream. But where it, it came to fruition was I graduated from Kane University after eight years with a bachelor's degree in biology. And I got pregnant with my daughter, Christina, and said, okay, I need to take a break from school because um, I want to I wanna buy a house. We had, you know, lived in apartments uh, most of our uh, young and adult lives. And 
And I thought, it'd be nice to raise Christina in a house. But we couldn't afford it. We, we couldn't afford a house. Uh, we didn't have, you know, a lot of money, my husband and I. And, and you know, we were a, a two-person working uh, household. But I thought, what if I just start looking? So I would circle in the newspaper. There was a house for sale, and I called the real estate agency up. And it was never, what we said was, we didn't want to, we didn't want the biggest, grandest house. We just wanted a little house in a safe, in a safe neighborhood. You know, given my upbringing, you know, that was the one thing. I wanted to be able to walk the dog and, and walk around with, with Christina. And so, you know, in looking at the houses, none of them fit my criteria. So I, I turned to the individual that was showing me a house, and I said, can't you show me a house that fixer upper in a nice neighborhood that's that's safe. And he said, well, those are kind of hard to find because what, as soon as they come on, on the market, somebody picks them up, fixes them, and then, you know, invests in them and sells them for more money. And I said to him, well, how can I get in on that? And he said, well, you could, you know, become a real estate agent. Now, someone says that to someone that's, you know, hasn't, maybe didn't have the experience I had, they would have said, you know, ha ha. But I said, well, how do you do that? Uh, again, curiosity. He says, well, you can you go go to school. So I was used to going to night school. And at the time I was working and I said, well, I'll take classes at night to become a real estate agent. So I did. And I uh, got my license, went into in a real estate office, put my license down and said, I'm just here to sell myself my own house. I won't, I won't get in the way. And so I did. I would, I would work during the day and uh, go, go to the real estate office at night. And at the time they had these big books. Computers were not you know, as advanced as they are today, you know, we're talking in the, in the late, you know, 1980s, late 1980s, early 90s. And so I'd go in there at night to look at these big books to see what houses that come out on the market. Well, I happened to be in the office. And uh, one day when they called, a little old lady called and she said, I want to sell my house. I said, I'll be right over. I purchased the house and uh, she was so kind. And then I started, you know, my friends started asking me about buying a house and my family and Before you knew it, I became a very successful real estate agent in the late 80s, early 90s. And it was during that period of time that I met someone that would ask me a question that changed my life. Again, back to that curiosity and that my dad had taught me how to listen intently to advice or to what people say. And so this this one individual that I had sold a house to, to ask me a question. She said, is this what you wanted to do when you were growing up? And I said, no, I, I wanted to be a doctor. And initially I wasn't going to say anything to her because I thought, well, she's going to laugh. But I told her and she said, well, why didn't you become a doctor? I said, well, we didn't have the money and I didn't know how. And by the way, I was very happy at this point in my career. I was very successful. I had a couple of houses. And she said, well, she said, you have the money now and I bet you could figure out how. And I asked her, well, what do you have to do? She said, well, you have to take an entrance exam. And I said, well, where do you take it? She said, you could take it at Rutgers. And I could go on, Jay, but the rest is history. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great story. It's an and, incredible story. And what's so powerful about it is you, you really had to become a real estate agent in order to find the kind of home and the kind of neighborhood that you wanted because otherwise it might not get shown to you. And then when you became a real estate agent, it strikes me that you took on being a real estate agent in the same way you've taken on being a healthcare leader is you helped uh, a a lot of people where there were inequities and 
in people who might be struggling to buy a home. You weren't, you weren't as focused on the big expensive home and the commission. You were a little bit more focused on, uh, how do I, how do I get people who are struggling into a house? And it was, uh, uh, great, great story. I think readers will really love it. Thank you. Thank you. I think that, um, you're right. I think I took on being a real estate agent the way I take on anything in life uh, with a lot of passion, a lot of compassion for people. I would sell a house to someone that had a lot of money and was experienced as quickly as I would sell to a first-time home buyer because I recognized even then that someone had to help me buy my first home. And so why not? And I would spend a lot of time with first-time home buyers that didn't have a lot of money because I it reminded me of me yeah. and, you know, just not losing that sense of, you know, being grounded in, you know, your own life priors and where you've been and how can you help someone else? And ultimately I think that that's, that's what did it. But it was that question from that buyer that really became the differentiator in my life where I just said, why not? Why not do it? Why not look into it? And, and there you have it. And by the way, I took that MCAT. When I get the MCAT results back, Jay, I don't know what that means because it's not like I have a guidance counselor or a college <laughs> professor, someone that's saying, hey, listen, you got you to gotta do this, you got to do that. And in fact, it was so interesting because, you know, now I have the results. So then, uh, the old, you know, so I, I said, well, where, where should I put these results? What, what do I do with them? And I, I remember the sign on Route 21 in New Jersey that said University of Medicine and Dentistry. So... I knew there was a medical school there. And so, you know, I got, I got in the car, I take off to New Jersey medical school and I show up to the admissions office because it said admission. And I tapped on the, on the window and asked the receptionist, could I apply to medical school? Cause I had my unofficial transcripts and, and she asked me if I had an appointment and I said, no, but I'll wait. The, 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 at, the, at the time, Jim Foster, the associate dean of the medical school, came out and we talked for about an hour and a half. And it was that that I think led me to believe that, I, you know, when I talked to him about my passion for achieving my dream and that I wanted to make a difference that uh, ultimately gained me not only an admission to New Jersey Medical School, but a four-year scholarship to go to medical school. Wow. And when I graduated, I, I stayed to give back to the community, to the Newark, uh, New Jersey community, because it was the community that had given me so much, including the blessing to be a physician. But it was also the community that reminded me of my own community in the Bronx and in Harlem, where all those years ago, you know, I, I also had roots. And so my passion for communities and communities of color, underserved communities, poor communities, just grew out of that, out of that experience. Yeah. And I know that's, that's been a passion of yours and that's actually something that's a a passion of ours. And we talked about it last year in a a two-part episode, episode 48, parts one and two about cultural competency and inclusive workforce and social determinants of health and things like that. You've done quite uh, a bit of groundbreaking work on, on those things and um, would love to learn about your work and also where you see opportunity remaining and how we can continue on that important work. Sure. So I, I stayed in Newark and, and I became the medical director of, of a local health center and, and became vice chairman of the Department of Medicine there. But ultimately what got me, I was so interested in the community. I went back when I graduated from my residency program in internal medicine to get a, 
a master's degree in public health. Because here's what I thought, our communities need us. And part of it was, can I bring something to the table? But where is that table? What tables can we physician leaders sit at to make a difference? And so I went back and got my master's degree in public health and became very involved at the state, at the state level. Uh, with the governor's office, as well as the health commissioner's office, worked on a disparities report for New Jersey, worked on with a lot of other leaders in New Jersey, including Bob Light, who just retired from Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, and other leaders across across the state to pass uh, a law that would ultimately have physicians taking six credits of continuing medical education to get licensed in the state of New Jersey is now known as the Bryant Law. We were the first in the country to pass that law because we, you know, we felt it was so important for physicians and providers to understand the impact of culture, of cultural health beliefs, of language, uh, limited English proficient patients, and so it was that passion and that coalescing of a group of us that felt so strongly about it that I think eventually ended up in making a difference in the state of New Jersey, and then a lot of states thereafter followed. But also at the local level, got very involved. I was a board member of the Newark Public Library. Why? Because I believe that the public library can be a nexus, a convener, particularly in poor communities that use the library for computer access and internet access and Wi-Fi. I took all the leadership at the time of both New Jersey Medical School as well as University Hospital on a tour of Newark, New Jersey, so that we could collectively understand the history of Newark and the impact that that had made in that community and the impact that the hospital and medical school can make. And so I became very passionate about growing programs, both clinical programs, as well as a socially responsive program in the Newark community to, to make a difference there. And so I still have a lot of great colleagues there, uh, Dean uh, Bob Johnson, Vice Dean Maria Soto Green, who was very instrumental in the medical school for students. And so uh, I still keep a lot of my contacts there. And I remember my days there very, very fondly. I love that story about you just taking people on a bus in, in, in Newark and, and getting out there into the community. And even though your the bulk of your career has, has been in in medical leadership, administrative leadership, and not necessarily as much in the traditional innovation space. You you seem to have the heart of an in- innovator and the the empathy to get out there and explore. Before you joined Northwell, which was just a few months ago, you were responsible for clinical transformation, innovation, community and population health at Lehigh Valley Network which is in Allentown, Pennsylvania. How did you view the role of innovation there specifically and, and kind of how did you approach innovation? Sure. So Lehigh Valley Health Network and the Lehigh Valley in Eastern Pennsylvania is a very special place. I became the, the chief transformation officer was the official name of the role, but innovation was part of the portfolio of that role for me there. And they really uh, understood that in order for health systems in the country to continue to be an ongoing concern for the community that they serve, we had to find a new value proposition. And what that means, you know, value means different things to different people, of course. At Lehigh Valley, it meant how could we do even better 
even better outcomes, even better patient experience, even better for our community. And how could we do it at a lower cost? That's, that's value. And so in order to extract value, you, you have to figure out how you do it differently. And so the role of innovation became so important for the system uh, that we actually sought a philanthropic funds and, and the Air Products Foundation. Uh, Air Products is the founding um, corporation for that health system, was kind enough to give us a, a, very, a sizable donation so that we can establish right in corporate headquarters, Jay, 25,000 square feet of innovation space meant to be the convening space for the community, government officials, community members, community organizations, churches, to come meet with us, talk to us, even corporations, about how we could together reinvent the future for healthcare and health within a community. And so innovation there became a, an, you know, an energizing a force for not only the health system, but the community that it serves, the employer community, the corporations that we do partnerships with there. And it, it just became the way that we do, you know, business. And never forgetting the community. Allentown community happens to be a very diverse community. And so uh, never forgetting the community and what we need uh, to do together in partnership and in collaboration with the community so that they feel that things are different, that things are changing in a positive way for them and for the health system. Yeah, it's incredible work. Um, I, I believe, and I think I read it this morning, actually, that Lehigh Valley University that they just opened or maybe rebranded um, their health college. I, I think they're calling it the College of Health, period. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's and, creative. <laughs> yeah. And just some of the, the the focus on population health and community health and, and just having a very different take than maybe what other public health universities are doing. And oh, that's so fascinating. Well, Deb, you have uh, experienced quite a lot at Northwell over the last uh, few months. It's 2020 has, has been a unique collision of a, of a, of a pandemic and then also quite a focus on, on racial injustice and, and some of the societal problems that, that we're seeing in our country. And, and you started as a senior executive at, uh, at New York's largest private employer and healthcare provider right in the very middle of all of this. Yes. As we think about the, the challenges that we're facing as a society, how might this be mm-hmm. an opportunity? And, and how do you see your role at Northwell and also Northwell's role in the community as, as being a change agent for, for that opportunity. Sure. Sure. So uh, let me begin by saying that I I feel really honored to be here at at Northwell as senior vice president. And and this is a a tremendous organization. It's the largest employer in New York. And I came at a time, uh, I came at a, at a, at a great time, at an opportune time where uh, the system needed the support for what it went through in in terms of this pandemic. A a few things, just to put it into perspective, you know, 72,000 employees in this system, and our markets are far and wide, not only in Long Island, but in Staten Island, Westchester. And I'll be honest with you, the the breadth and the depth, the system has 23 hospitals, 600 practices. So it's a large, far-reaching system that affects many, many, many communities. Uh, the, The COVID hit us 
Uh, we were the epicenter, as you know, for COVID. And uh, we, we took care of more than 70,000 people, uh, discharged more than 15,000 people from our hospitals. It was really an unbelievable, unimaginable experience to go through that. With, uh, in collaboration with the governor of, of New York, we helped stand up a hospital in, in the Javits Center and uh, collaborated with the U.S. Comfort, USS Comfort. Uh, and we, in, in the surge that we saw in our hospitals, our hospitals became uh, essentially COVID hospitals with intensive care beds all, you know, all over the hospital. And so uh, we're on the other side of that, fortunately, uh, through strong leadership, uh, both at the state level as well as the healthcare level. We're seeing stable numbers now, and we are preparing not only for recovery, but also for resurgence. I'll be honest with you, what the system also did was took the many lessons that we learned and we started to think to ourselves, what can we do to get upstream to prevent uh, this from happening again or to at least create opportunities where we can provide education in the community, where we can work in partnership with our community so that they can stay healthy in the event of a resurgence. And that's where, again, in collaboration, with Governor Cuomo at the state level and other uh, local officials, we, uh, we were asked to start to partner with the churches here, the faith-based organizations, to do COVID testing and also use that as the entree to develop enduring partnerships in these communities, particularly in underserved communities and poor communities and communities of color. And to date, we've done testing in over 70 churches for um, over uh, 55,000 people. We've tested first responders, uh, uh, close to 10,000 first responders. We're gonna continue to do that work so that we can develop relationships in that in the event that that community needs us again uh, or needs us in the future, we can be proactive and not just do it for COVID, but do it for education, for health education, for healthcare needs, for access, for wellness. And so, working collaboratively with them to see how can we develop stronger relationships and a stronger presence in these communities uh, that we serve. We have the, uh, you know, the, the, the twin or the, or the triple pandemic, by the way, that has also surfaced as a result of COVID, which is unemployment and therefore poverty. And food insecurity is also a big issue that we are are working collaboratively and will be working collaboratively with our organizations. And lastly, you know, the issue of social injustices in our world, but in this community. How can we work together? Uh, mental health and well-being in our community is becoming really important. And so that's the, that's the work ahead and the path ahead. Uh, how can we use the, the, what happened with COVID so that we can develop really uh, deep roots within our community to, to work and, and work alongside of them and, and be there for them in, in sickness and in health? Deb, thank you so much for for those examples. Uh, and it's interesting, kind of going for a cir- full circle, the work that you're doing with faith based organizations in these communities. That's, I mean, that's a lot of where you came from, right? With a, a family, of yep. a father as a as a preacher in this faith based organization, and probably yep. an underserved community. And right, right. I gotta tell you a funny story, Ben. So, I was doing testing in a church in the Bronx. And I asked, I always, whenever I do testing, you know, in a, in a church or in a faith, so I always, uh, you know, I asked permission to go to the sanctuary. They took me to the sanctuary. 
And on my way to the sanctuary, I realized that I was in a church that my dad had told me all about. And in fact, I had met the founding minister of that church when I was a little girl. And that's how I knew that my life had come full circle. Because here I was standing in the sanctuary of a church where my dad had been best friends with the founding minister. And I looked up and I said, I knew dad was there. And I said, I'm where I'm supposed to be in life. Uh, and I count my blessings. Wow. Wow. That's wonderful. I, I would, I would love to end there. I, I just have one more question, <laughs> but that was, that was beautiful <laughs> and, and so fulfilling. And, and what a great story, uh, uh, just your journey that, that people can learn more about with your book. But, but I, I wanted to ask one more question just because this is something that, that our team is working on currently. And, and I imagine a lot of other teams are, are dealing with a lot of those same effects of COVID of uh, the, the rise of unemployment and, you know, now people experiencing housing challenges and, and food insecu- insecurity mm-hmm. and, and things like that. What do you see a health system's role being in in mitigating those things versus, you know, there, there are some that say, well, you know, this this really should be something that, that the government does or we should rely more on nonprofits or how come mm-hmm. grocery store chains, how come they're not stepping up? I don't know. And And obviously there are so yeah. many stakeholders that right. that could contribute but what do you think is the unique position of healthcare system to sure. make that change in the community i think it's incumbent on health systems to be an active collaborator to be the convener to be the facilitator and to play an active role in partnership with community based organizations and faith-based organizations and community members to address the unmet social needs in the community. Let's face it, think about food insecurity. We can take care of people all day long in our practices and in our health systems and discharge them home and, and hope that they have access to a healthy meal. And we took care of their diabetes, we got it under control, and we got their blood pressure under control for a minute. Because then they go home to where they spend most of their time for the rest of the year. And they don't have access to healthy food. And they don't have help with their other transportation needs or or their behavioral needs. We have to be a part of that. And while in certain circumstances we're not the lead, but we can facilitate, we can convene, we can bring organizations together. We know how to do that. We can collaborate. We can use our strength as a health system to make policy changes that we need so that our community can be healthy. We're only as healthy as the most vulnerable community member in our community as a health system. And so we do need to be the active participant on there and not look away or shy away. Actually, only 20% of your health is based on, you know, the, the, what the health system can do for you. The rest of it is based on a lot of other things, like your physical environment, your food. To, you know, do you have access to healthy foods? Can you afford it? Uh, unemployment. So th- those are all things that I think health systems incumbent on us to be a, an active participant and a collaborator, a convener, and do our part to make the lives of our community members better. And by the way, that also impacts health. Well said. Very well said. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Deb Salas-Lopez, thank you so much, Deb, for for sharing your experiences and and your perspectives with us. And and, uh, as I mentioned, we'll provide links to your book in the show notes. And and we encourage our listeners to 
to get the book and learn from your story. I, I feel like there are so many parallels from your life and your experiences growing up in New York to what we're seeing today in, in our communities and, um, and the, the mandate that is on, on all of us to make improvements in, in our communities. And so this was a real honor to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Jay, for the opportunity to speak not only about the book, but also about the work I'm really passionate about. And thank you for the work you're doing for asking people like me to share my, my story and share my insights. Cause I know that your podcasts are making a difference to the listeners and to the people that uh, you're serving. So thank you uh, for the invite. And also thank you for your work. Oh, thanks so much. We, we loved having you. you on here. Yeah. Well, Jay, I think we'll wrap it up. Shall we? This is Ben Tingey with Jay Gerhart. Thanks so much for listening all. We'll connect with you next time. Stay safe and stay healthy. first uh well I, have we had i think we've had people from new york before but you might be our first puerto rican on the podcast oh. which would be awesome <laughs> nuestra primera puerto riqueña puerto riqueña como no seguro sí, gracias. claro habla español muy bien no gracias estoy fuera de práctica <laughs> tendría que practicar oh.